mercy, peace be multiplied to you from God our Father, and may you also be given the wisdom to recognize and the gratitude to appreciate all that God does for you moment by moment, every single day, and on into eternity. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, when you read the title for this morning's sermon, Well Connected, I'm guessing you would envision someone who has prominent or powerful friends, friends in high places, as the expression goes. We tend to value such things because of what those people can do for us. Oh, you, you know a police officer, can you get him to fix this ticket or tell me where the best sale on donuts is? You know a legislator or you know the city engineer, can you do something about those silly stoplights when we go out of church, how they don't seem to work right? We want something. You have a powerful friend, we, you can do something. Now, take a little different approach to this this morning. Instead of that picture, think back to when you were a little squirt and you were walking around. Think back to holding on to mom or dad's hand or grandma or grandpa or even an older sibling and how connected you felt. And because of that connection, you felt safer. You felt comforted. There was just something reassuring about that, holding on to somebody's hands and you just follow where they went. You assumed, whether it was true or not, that they were wiser, they were stronger, they knew what they were doing, they knew what they were, where they were going and how to get there and what to do when they got there. It was just such a comforting thing to be connected like that. And now, by the way, most of you are on the other end of that, aren't you? Where the little ones hold on to your hand, believing that you know what you're doing. Amusing sometimes, isn't it, that we thought our parents knew what they were doing. They think we're no, we know what we're doing, and often neither is true. But take this picture, the security and comfort of that simple thing, holding on to the hand of an adult, and now take it to a more spiritual plane or a more spiritual level. Wouldn't it be great to be able to be connected like that to Jesus? to be able to just grab hold of Jesus' hand and go wherever he directs, to be able to trust in his wisdom, his judgment, in every situation in life. So we're, we're afraid we hold Jesus' hand. We're apprehensive. We're uncertain. We're demoralized. Just hold Jesus' hand. Well, the fact is, we can be connected like that because it's Jesus that said I will never leave you I will never forsake you I will be with you for all time until the end of time as we know it but there's even a more amazing truth in all of this we're looking at it from our perspective to Jesus oh I wish I could just hold his hand and be connected to him. Did you ever stop to think that Jesus wants to be connected to you and not just others, to you? 
Jesus wants that connection with you, that unbroken, holding of the hand sort of connection. And he reaches that hand out to you in his word every moment of every day. He's always there. Now, we're like little kids when they get brave, when, okay, things to be, seem to be going good, so I'm going to, and they run off. I don't need to hold your hand, Dad, Mom, because I can handle this. And then one thing happens, a dog bark, whoo, they're right back. How did you feel toward the child? You were always willing to hold that child's hand, always willing. That's how our Savior is to us. He longs to be connected always to us. And that connection, of course, we understand is to be found when we make use of the word he's given us. That's where he's promised to be with us, to visit us, to give us those gifts that we want and need. So we read about, about this desire that our Savior has to be well connected to us in our, in our text for this morning. And all of Scripture is, of course, amazing. It's God's Word. But certain things are regarded by Christians as especially precious for whatever reason. This morning we have two such. Our first was the gospel reading that we had from John with that gospel and a message in John 3.16. But another one of my favorites is in this second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We begin there with the fourth verse. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word, the verbally inspired words of our creator God. We hold these words in such high esteem because of what they are, because of what they provide for us. That is the thing. These words, these words of God, are the thing that brought us to faith, that converted us, that connected us again to our God. And these words are also the hand of God that he reaches toward us. We take that hand in faith and he further comforts and instructs us. So also we pray this morning, Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. <clears throat> Permit a rather silly random question, which we'll connect in a moment to our text and theme this morning. Have you ever watched one of those ridiculous zombie movies? Walking Dead. You know, I saw, I saw one once, and 
this thought occurred to me, this question. Do they know they're dead? And I caught myself, and I wanted to check myself into a psych ward. You're really asking if a zombie that doesn't exist knows that it's dead. But, as in so many other things, if we are connected to our God, we can turn even the silliest things into something meaningful. And from there, it transitioned into, but there are living dead all around us every day, aren't there? They're the people that don't know are not connected to their God. They are the walking dead, spiritually, not alive. Because our text tells us, among other things, that there is no life until God creates it. No spiritual life. We're born dead. So we have to be given, at some point in our, in our dead life, we have to be given spiritual life. So all around us are the walking dead. And the question applies then, doesn't it? It isn't so silly. Do they know they're dead? And the answer is not really. Well, they know what we think. They can hear what we think about someone who exists in unbelief that they're not spiritually alive, but they feel alive. They feel fine. So their natural conclusion is, you're nuts. You're a wacko. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. You don't know what's going on inside me. So, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus as you do. But, yeah, I'm alive in every way. I'm alive. I can, I can feel it. I know I am. They're not. This is nothing that, we're, that, that causes us to be prideful, by the way, because we were all in that state. That's how we were born. That's a default position of every human being other than Jesus Christ. We're all born in sin. We're born, therefore, spiritually dead, which is an interesting oxymoron almost, isn't it? We're born dead, and we live our lives dead until something happens to us. The only difference with us is most of us were, were brought to life at a time when we couldn't even recognize infant baptism, or it was so long ago we'd forgotten the difference. We've forgotten that profound change that takes place. The gift of spiritual life carries with it certain other gifts. In other words, you can see the truth now. You, you aren't blinded to things. You don't have that veil that Paul describes over your eyes so that you can't discern what the truth is. That's a gift that God has given you. But what it does tell us, because our text says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's when we were rescued. Even while you were dead, what that tells us is that we were in every way rescued. Now, understand that word. To be rescued means you were powerless. Someone else had to come and do that for you, work that in you. You couldn't aid in that. You're unconscious, having fallen down a cliff, you need to be rescued. Your heart stops beating. You call somebody else. You don't call an ambulance. That would be hard. Somebody else calls the ambulance and you need to be rescued. 
We were spiritually dead. We needed to be rescued. Somebody had to come in and do what we could not. You see how insulting it is then to the Holy Spirit to think in terms of having made a decision or having in any way brought ourselves to spiritual life? How insulting. Think of the person who fell down the cliff. He's knocked unconscious. He's lying there bleeding, dying. And then those brave, whatever those rescue people are with that little board that they strap you to come in and still unconscious, they strap you in it and they haul you up by whatever means and they take you to a hospital and they work on you and they bring you back and you're... So, and for you to say, boy, whew, that's quite a rescue of myself, wasn't it? Just as silly to think when God says I'm dead spiritually to think I somehow made myself alive. I rescued myself. Even when we were dead in trespasses, our text says, God made us alive together with Christ. Now, our, our problem again, and the problem of everyone before the Holy Spirit brings them to faith, is that they neither know, knew nor cared that they were spiritually dead. We didn't. We didn't walk around thinking, yeah, I'm spiritually dead, but I wish I could make myself spiritually alive. I wish somebody would do that for me. God did that. This gives us a better understanding, or is supposed to give us a better understanding of how profoundly thankful we ought to be for what God, the Holy Spirit, has done in us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. <clears throat> Our text so powerfully, magnificently, rules out any cooperation from us in our being brought from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. I, I love the passages in Scripture that attack it from both sides. You didn't do it not a result of work, so that you can't boast. It's such a bulletproof statement from God. So I love these, this, this section in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So then the next question is, why did God do that then? And you know the answer. But it's comforting, isn't it? To have Jesus reach out his hand here and tell us in so many words, God being rich in mercy. Again, all from God, isn't it? God being rich in mercy. The direction arrow is always from God to me, to us, because of His great love with which He loved us. There's the answer, isn't it? Made us alive together with Christ. Our rescue stands as unalterable testimony to God's love for us. And don't fail to make this personal, to take this personally, because that's what it's intended to be. Don't think in terms of the world here. Think in terms of me, you, individually. God, when I was dead, made me, made you alive. The Holy Spirit did that. When you could do nothing, you were hopelessly dead spiritually. God loved you. God rescued you. 
God made you alive in Christ Jesus. And yet there's still more in this text. Our text also teaches that God's grace enables our participation with our intimate connection to Him. Uh, what? Hear again these words from our text and then th- and think in terms now of being well-connected to and how in different ways God connected. And see if you thought about this before. God raised us up with Him. We're connected to Jesus in His resurrection. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're connected to Jesus even in heaven. We're seated together with Him that connection God established in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's look closer at those words, just to make sure we're not missing anything. We have been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. Do you realize that Paul emphasized this truth, this well-connected status that we have? In this letter to the the church at Ephesus, five different times, he pointed to this, you are well-connected to Jesus. Not just, yeah, you believe in him, so you have that connection as one of his children. He goes into this deeper connection that we have. And you've heard these words, but have you thought about them? We were buried with him through baptism in his death. We were crucified with him in connection with our being brought to faith. That connection there is more intimate than, yeah, he's my friend and I talk to him once in a while. Far more complicated and intricate than we would imagine. Again, raised us up with him. We've been connected through his resurrection, seated us with him. And this isn't, it's not a future thing. It's not will seat us. It's already we're connected with him where he is as our Savior God. And then the question is, how, how, why would he do that? Why would God desire to be so connected to me? to sinners like us. Why would God choose to be connected for all eternity to us? By way of explanation, let me tell you a story that supposedly had its beginning in ancient Rome. There was a a matron, and not unlike our society, when there was a big event, they would dress in their finest clothes and put on their finest jewels, and that was supposed to demonstrate who they were. Well, one Roman matron, we're told, went without fancy clothes and with no adornment. And those at the festival asked her, where are your jewels? And her reply was to point to her sons and said, there are my jewels. 
Now, don't miss the parallel in our text. Because this is actually rather startling. Here we learn that if God were to be asked such a question in heaven, where are your jewels, he would point to you and me. Do you feel that you're qualified for such a position? Does anybody here imagine that you would be the kind of person that God would point to and say, that's my pride and joy. That's my jewel right there. So why would he? Our text makes it clear. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. We are demonstrations of God's grace and mercy and love. So what would be the qualifications? Well, if God is demonstrating his grace, grace, remember, is undeserved love. The qualifications for that position, the position of a jewel to which God will point, is to be an absolutely unworthy, unlovable sinner. Because that's a demonstration of his grace, his undeserved love. That's exactly what our text is talking about when he says, in those times in heaven, God will point to us and say, here's a testament to how great I am. Here's the testament to my grace. And I fit that. I'm up for that job. Because God can point at me and say, he's in heaven. That's a testament to God's grace. Put yourself in there. Do you fill that position? Of course you do. Nothing worthy in me. Nothing did I bring to the table. What do we have that we've, been not, that we've not been given? So even the gifts that God gave us that we use so poorly in His service now are gifts. And that's why God in heaven will point to us and say, there's the testament. Again from our text, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're the bright, shining examples of God saving worthless sinners. Does this give you pause when you hear it? It did me. It does me. Because I think in terms of I am unworthy. God has brought me to spiritual life. But now, what kind of example am I setting? Go back to that Roman matron. Imagine if you were one of her sons, and she pointed to you and said, that's my jewel. How does that help us going forward? Because we've been given a role. We are what we are. We have been brought to spiritual life. We have been designated to be, declared to be, not just forgiven, but God's ambassadors, his representatives. And now our text talks about why did he do this? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You remember how in Rome they had this crazy idea that Paul had to disabuse them of that should we sin more so that 
God can be magnified more because he freely forgives sins, so God will be magnified if I go on sinning and doing bad stuff because the worse I am, the better he is. Paul says, of course not. Why? Because you're no longer spiritually dead. You've been brought to life. You've been made an heir of heaven. So here, God created works for us in advance to do. That's an awesome thought. In other words, our life is just identifying what God has already placed, the opportunities God has placed before us. And we thank him now, not earn his love because it's already ours, not earn our life because that's already ours. We thank him by trying to be what he wants us to be, by trying to live the way he wants us to live. It's hard, isn't it, for us to keep those things straight? We talk about good works and we say good works are bad. No, they're not. Good works trying to earn salvation is bad. But good works please our God. So take this message of our text to heart. Don't externalize it. Recognize how intimately you are connected to your Savior God. And then don't forget that part of this connection, part of what he's promised, is that you can go and talk to him every, any moment of every day and have his promise that he hears and answers. We cannot be better connected to our God than that. We could never hope to be better connected to anyone beyond that. Amen.